the heart of sacrifice is death. And yet in Romans 12 verse 1, the Apostle Paul joins sacrifice not only with death, but with life. He challenges us with a strange command. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Let's join our study leader, Dave Woodson, as he explores the questions of why should we do this and how can we die and yet live? In honor of the Word of God, let's stand up and let's read Romans. We'll read chapter 11, the end of the verse, and we'll honor the Lord. Let me just start to read what we covered the last time we were together, and I'll read through chapter 12, verse 2. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should have to repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And what elicited that praise was verse 32. For God has bound all men over to disobedience. All of them are sinners. They've all disobeyed the Lord. Why? So that he may have mercy on them all. And Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, my brothers, I urge you, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Then you'll be able to test. You'll be able to approve what God's will is. God's will is good. God's will is pleasing. God's will is perfect. How many of you want to get to the end of this journey? You want to get to the end of your life and find out that you lived a good life? Anybody want to do that? How many of you want somebody to get up at your homegoing service and as they express to the audience and everyone's getting ready to go into the, the fellowship room of the church and eat their Texas barbecue and have some cornbread with it and some Texas beans and they talk about you, how many of you want them to say, this person really lived a good life? They lived a good life. All of you want that, right? You all want that. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning how to do that, Okay. And I'm going to tell you just the opposite from what you're going to hear throughout your society. How many of you have seen the ad with this really elegant, you know, rich lady? She's all decked out. It's obvious she spent about $200 to get her hair done. She's got a beautiful suit on. And she settles back into her brand new Escalade, her brand new Cadillac. And she's saying, and that's it's like, I finally bought my own gift. Anybody seen that ad? That's the thrust. What is that ad telling you? That ain't telling you, ladies, you deserve it. You're skilled. You need to go for it. Don't rely upon your kids and your husband to get a gift. They've been blowing it for the last 40 years. So you need to buy your own gift. You should honor yourself. Settle back in that big leather luxury, and you feel the power. And man, you'll purr. Now, do you really believe that? How many of you believe that that's the truth? But, you know, people will buy Cadillacs, I promise you, because your society, you know, throughout the next month, you're going to be told again and again and again 
that you deserve it. And you need to be sure that the meaning of life, the good life, is having all this stuff. Now, how many of you know in the depth of your soul today that no matter how many things, times you go to the mall, no matter how much stuff you buy, it never really satisfies you? How many of you have found out already in life that that's true? So why do you keep living like that? So the Apostle Paul today is going to start out and he's going to tell us something totally different. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. This is the hinge paragraph in the book of Romans, the hinge part. He's just told you incredible truth, life-transforming truth. Now he's going to tell you, so what are we going to do about it? In light of the fact that all these things have been done to you for God, how should we then live? That's what he's saying. And look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... The therefore says in light of all that Paul has taught us, especially from chapter 118 all the way through to the great doxology that we just read, to him be glory forever and ever. Therefore, I urge you, I want you to see Paul, this urging is very strong. You daddies need to learn how to urge your kids. You moms need to learn how to urge your kids. As a pastor, one of my gifts is to exhort you. People have said, you know, Dave, you're an exhorter. I am an exhorter. I need to be more of an exhorter. What it means is I want you to listen to me. What I'm telling you could save your life. Paul really believes what he's telling you. He knows where he's going in his own life, and he wants you to go there with him. In fact, this word urge, it can be used to comfort. That's one of this Greek word is often used of comforting. For example, when it says in the, in, in the Corinthian letter, and the God of all mercies, which we're going to be reminded of in a minute, and the God of all comfort, it uses this word to speak about God's comfort. But interesting, the word also means to give you a strong exhortation. And I love the fact that the Apostle Paul uses a word that combines comfort and relating to you as a, as a tender parent, but it also has steel behind it. I want you to listen to me. I want young people to listen today. I want children to listen today. It'll save you if you listen to what the Apostle Paul wants to tell us today. You'll be saved untold suffering in your life. You'll be saved danger in your life. You will be told what will, when you get all the way done, if you live your whole life the way that we're going to teach this morning, then when you get all done, you're going to say it was good. It was pleasing. In fact, it was perfect. It was complete. So Paul is really strong. He says, I beseech you, therefore, and then he says, brethren. I want everyone of you to know that when the Apostle Paul uses the word brethren, it's a really deep personal commitment to family. Only it's not just your blood family. How many of you have a commitment to your blood family? How many of you ever read about the Sacketts and Louis L'Amour? Anybody ever read? How many of you have ever read Louis L'Amour novels? Mary Dedlove. It's an old Western, if you don't know what it is. And, and Louis L'Amour tells the same story. He made millions, millions and millions telling the same story over and over again. You know what his story is? We're a band of brothers. If you hurt one Sackett, I mean, in the first chapters, one of the Sacketts gets shot 40 times. How he ever doesn't bleed, it looks like he's a pincushion. And he struggles up into the mountains of Colorado with lightning striking all, all over the place. And his brothers found out that a bad guy had shot one of the sackets. And then they come from all over the world, all over the nation really. And they beat up, the band of brothers beats up the bad guy. Why is it such a powerful story? Mary's dad read all of those. I read all of them. 
when I was on vacation at Mary at her house, and then I got Mary and I have all read them, and our boy had read them, and Janae even read them as we drove out west. Why do we read that? Because you're all attracted to a band of brothers. What made the World War II generation so great? They were a band of brothers. I got a greater news, and by the way, this is really cool because we're going to let you sistren the ladies. Brothers and sisters, you live in a culture that everything has to be politically correct. There's a reason why in the Word of God, the Bible almost always appeals to the brethren. It's not to leave you sisters out. To be honest with you, you sisters, most of the time, do what you're supposed to do if we men do what we're supposed to do. Now, you got responsibility, and we'll be talking about that. And ladies, you're really being challenged to become just like us. And you're being challenged to live for yourself. And you're being challenged not to put yourself under anyone's authority. And that's not going to work. In fact, just to be honest with you, like wives, your number one responsibility before God is to respect your husband. And it does mean that you put yourself under his authority. There's a great big debate about that. But 1 Peter 3, that says, I need to really understand Mary and be really tender with Mary. Before you get to that verse, it tells Mary, you got to take that strong, administrative, Nebraska quietness, and you need to listen when your Yankee, fast-talking, New York husband says, honey... I've heard it, and this is the way it's going to be. And she has to say, yes, honey. If I'm not asking her to break God's holy word. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us, we live in a culture where none of you want to listen. All of you want to do your own thing. And our idea of leadership today is we all get together and everybody does what they want to do. It's not going to work. You know why? Because all of us are being taught to live for ourselves, and you'll never be a band of brothers if you live for yourself. In other words, you choose churches. Do you like it this morning? How many of you like what's gone on so far this morning? How many of you didn't like it? Come on. How many of you didn't? Bad, bad service so far. So you know what you all decide to do? We're gone. So Joel comes home. We get through having Thanksgiving. You know, he came up Friday, spent all day Saturday, Sunday afternoon. You know, Joel decided, well, Dad, I'm not going to stay tonight. I, I don't really have to be to work till Monday afternoon, but I, I'm leaving. It was, I, it, the, the holiday just didn't meet the level of excellence that we really need to have in a Thanksgiving celebration. And one of my kids pooped in their pants, and you didn't jump up in there and change them. And I feel that I should have had a break because I change Blythe's diapers all the time. And you're as lousy papa. So I'm gone. In fact, the next holiday, I'm going to go to a different grandparent's home. You all laugh, but that's what you're all doing with church. And I'm telling you from the depths of my heart, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss what God wants for you. Because... You'll never have a band of brothers. You're not going to ever have a Carol Thomas come up to you and grab a hold of me and say, you know, Wurtson, we've buried, we've gone through MS with Virginia. 
And we spent nights in the hospital, and we spent nights at my house when she could barely move. And we heard her whisper, and we saw the devastating power of a disease, and we went through that together. And we were also there after we celebrated her homegoing, and we were there when Mary and I went out with Susan and Carol, and Carol's telling us, hey, there can be a new day. There can be a new time. And you're never going to have a man grab a hold of you and just hug you with a bear hug that feels like a grizzly bear, but it's tender. And says, a lot of water has gone over the dam in our lives together. Thanks for being my brother. That's what should happen in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is saying is that we're brothers. I want you to know that you're going to be my brother and sister No matter where we go in the world, no matter what the Lord might call any of you to do, Ed and Corley left his church family after only being here a couple years, and we laughed about it as a group of elders today. They voted against you becoming a church, really. Ed voted against you. All the other original men said, yeah, we need to be a church. Ed voted no. So what we did is we shipped them behind the Iron Curtain. I'm just being facetious. I wasn't in on that vote, by the way. But the men actually said, all right, forget the secret stuff. Who voted no? (laughs) That's what families do. Don't ever lose that. That's what families do. And that's what the Apostle Paul had. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, because you men need to take the initiative in God's family. You can vote for Hillary for president. Nothing in the Word of God says that you shouldn't. Don't throw me out the rest of the time. But as a woman, there's nothing wrong biblically. Esther was a great queen. The queen of Sheba was really, really smart. And Cleopatra was not good, but she was a very powerful ruler. So there's nothing in the word of God. Lydia was a, was a marvelous business lady. So I challenge you ladies, please go out there and make tons of money. We need it for the glory of God. We need it to keep growing and ministering and missionaries need it. So man, ladies, if you're an entrepreneur, go for it. But in your home and in the church, the Lord wants her to be a, a respectful leadership structure. He wants the men to take initiative. It needs to be a healing. It needs to be a restorative. It needs to be a leadership structure that lets you ladies just explode with your giftedness, but it means that we're responsible. And so I want to say to you, brothers, you need to be a band of brothers. You need to say to your family, we're committed. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And then he says, by the mercies of God. And what he's saying here is that the reason you need to make the commitment that I want you to make, and it's not a commitment you make just once in your life. It's really a commitment I have to make every single day. But he says, I want you to make this commitment based upon the mercies of God. And what he's trying you to do is think back through all the way through the book of Romans. Look what the Lord has done in his mercy. Number one, how many of you are thankful that the Lord didn't zap you the first time you disobeyed him? How many of you are still living and breathing today because the first time you broke one of his commandments and lied, a lightning bolt didn't strike you? That's a great gift. You're all sitting here today because of God's mercy. He said, hey, where did he get that from? He started out in Romans 2. He says, don't you know that God is holding back his judgment against your sin because of his mercy? He wants people to repent. As you look at unbelieving people, you need to see them. God is being merciful to them. He wants them to repent. Don't get mad at unbelievers. 
Don't feel that they're ruining your country. Don't feel that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Because Romans already tell you, you know what? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. And only those that trust in Christ, God is restraining his judgment. God's going to burn up the whole place. So don't get discouraged. God is holding back his judgment because he loves, he's merciful. And there's millions of people coming to Christ in the world. And he wants to use us to touch individual lives in our families and in people that we come to know. And so I love him because he's merciful. He's holding back his wrath. Second of all, it means that he'll never count your sins against you. How many of you feel that God is uptight with you and he's got a checklist today? That's not true. If you've come to Jesus and you've responded to him, Jesus came to live in your life, you, you're standing before God is that the book of Romans has taught you God will never count your sins against you. Your daddy might do it. Your mommy might do it. Your teacher might do it. But God will never do it. And it's totally free because of what he did for you on the cross. He'll never, never, never count your sins against you. So you stop counting your sins against you. Forgive yourself. God has forgiven you. Incredible mercy. I don't understand it, but it's true. God will, won't count my sins against me. Never count my sins against me because I've come to his precious son. He's provided in his mercy a sacrifice for sin. That's what Romans 3 was about. That's what Romans 5 was about. In his mercy, he has taken our dead body and he's given us a body that will last forever and ever. Like he's given us a spirit right now that's going to last forever and ever. Your new nature that's progressively becoming like Christ is eternal. And one day when you die, the Lord's going to take this body. Like when I go out and I've started to run again. Man, I used to run four miles just right, you know, not real, real fast, but like nine minutes, you know, just really steady and Never got winded. Now, man, I run up to the end of the block. And, <laughs> this body's really going down. But my best days in my body are ahead. I'm going to be 6'4 someday. <laughs> and I'm going to run the, the 100 meters under 10 seconds. If I want to in heaven, don't you laugh. And I'm going to dunk. I'm going to dunk like Michael Jordan. The best days for my body are ahead because of Jesus' resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. We've also learned in the book that we not only have a life that's going to give life to our present dead body, his mercy obligates us not to live by the power of this in nature. And his mercy in Christ means that nothing will ever separate us from his love. You go through the book of Romans this week. Go back and look at all the mercy of God, all that he's done for us. I was taught as a little kid that this verse meant we all sat at a big campfire, and God had really used this campfire. At World Life, we'd all sit at a campfire. On Saturday night, we all gave our lives to Jesus. We trusted Jesus. We didn't give our lives to him. We trusted Jesus for salvation. On Wednesday night, we all threw a stick in the fire, and what it usually meant, if you were really holy, you went to the mission field. Like I've often told you, if you weren't quite that holy, then you do what I do, because you'd eat but you wouldn't get rich. And then all the rest of the peons that didn't throw their stick in the fire, they went into business and supported us that were holy enough to burn our life out for Jesus. Now, I'm being very facetious, but I used to talk to my dad about this. I said, Dad, this is crazy to me because this whole organization is supported by people making money. 
And you're communicating to them that if you really want to present your life as a living sacrifice, you would never go into politics. You'd never go into government. You would never go into school teaching. You'd never, and, and absolutely, you'd never become an entrepreneur and make a lot of money. And yet all of your good buddies make a lot of money, and they're the ones that buy the buses to get the kids to come here to camp. What's going on? So I want all of you Baptists that felt called to the ministry a long time ago, and now that you felt you lived your whole life out of the call of God, I want to tell you something. God probably didn't call you. Because most of you can't speak your way out of a wet paper bag any more than do what I'm doing this morning. You're not gifted to do it. Any more than I'm gifted to do what you do. You can ask Bob Stanberry, do you want me to administrate and and keep track of of spreadsheets and stuff? He's agonizing half the time over my, all I'm doing is thinking of be gracious, be gracious, and nobody does anything. You see, it takes all of us. I want to bless all of you. And want all of you this today to realize God has granted his mercy to us. All of us today are under the merciful love of God if you've come to the cross. Now, how do you respond to that? He says, God says, I want you to take your life and I want you to put it on the altar. You know what's wrong with Dave Wartson today? He isn't totally really dead in his everyday life yet. Positionally before God, I'm joined with Christ in the cross. But as I live day by day, there's still a lot of the old Dave in my life. How about you? And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that that this isn't just a a once-in-a-lifetime decision. What he's saying is that in Romans 6, he told us, when you got baptized, you pictured this. When you went down to the water, you died. You were joined with Christ. That's what your baptism pictured. When you came up out of the water, Romans 6 tells us that you were declaring, I have received a new resurrection life. So as I stand before you today, there's a new Dave Wurtzen that was created in me because of Jesus. When you trusted Jesus, if you genuinely did trust Jesus, then you became a new person. You've received a miraculous, gracious gift And what the Lord wants you to do, like in Romans 6, he went on and said, now I want you to take the parts of your body. I want you to take your hands. I want you to take your eyes. I want you to take your feet. And I want you to put them on the altar. I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice. And that's the oxymoron. In the Jewish audience that Paul was running to and the Greek audience, how many of you have ever seen an honest-to-goodness sacrifice? How many of you have ever seen an animal slain? How many of you have ever seen an animal slain? Raise your hand. All of you have ever seen an animal slain. Well, good. Okay, I want you to think about that. And I want you to realize that the audience that Paul was running to, if you were a Greek, you might not realize that, but Romans and Greeks sacrificed animals. Everybody that he wrote to knew what it was. You took an animal, and they watched the priest. It could be an idolatrous temple. They still cut the throat of the lamb, drained the blood into a basin. In the temple of Jerusalem, they drained the blood down through this immaculate plumbing system down near the Kidron Valley. And they take the flesh of that animal. They put it on an altar that was burning hot. When Mary and I were in Islamic countries at the Feast of Ishmael, we saw them slitting 
the lamb's throat. They drain the blood out. Then they put the lamb on a big roaster, a big fire, and they heated the lamb. And in a, in a burnt offering for sin, they totally burnt up the sacrifice. You know what? A sacrifice dies. And the Apostle Paul wants you to realize when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you need to die to that old way of life. Jesus wasn't just added to your life to help you to get a pink Cadillac. He wasn't added to your life so that you could have him bless your entrepreneurial business. Jesus wasn't added to your life as the super Dr. Phil. My Savior this morning comes before you as the only one that loved you. He died for you. He rose again. But he demands that you die with him. And we're not hearing that. And I want to share with you, I need to die. I'm as arrogant as I can imagine in my old flesh. I want all of you to be like me. And that's wrong. And so I block the giftedness of other people around me when I act in my own strength. And I don't let other gifts explode around me. That's the way all of you are. When I get angry, when I get angry, if somebody rebukes me, it's because my pride was hurt. When I go out to the Evangelical Theological Society and I find out while I'm in the restroom that I was supposed to do a lecture that they never told me about, I'm discouraged. Man, this was my chance to do a lecture on the Evangelical Theological Society. I didn't even know I was supposed to do it. And I do a lousy lecture. And I'm discouraged, just like you. You know why? Because I want my peers to think Dave Wurtzen's smart. Dave Wurtzen's a good academician, not as well as a good pastor. I'm sharing to you from my heart. It's because I'm not dead to Dave Wurtzen. Jesus doesn't care whether or not I found that or not. Jesus in his mercy might have taught the people more when I extempted for 30 minutes than they would have ever learned by a learned lecture. Because that's the wondrous mercy of his grace. But my pride blocks me, and some of you have been blocked because you're not dead to yourself. So you get hurt all the time. It's hard to hurt a corpse's feelings. It's hard to hurt somebody that's died to themselves and just lives for the glory of Jesus. And it, well, the Lord wants to produce a bunch of people that are hurt because Jesus is hurt, not because they're hurt. But I want to go on and say what we're a living sacrifice. We not only die with Christ, but we're not going to be dead. I'm still alive. You're alive. With all of my feelings and all of my humanity. And that's okay. Jesus said that I need to be not just a dead sacrifice. I, I was taught, like, like my brother was taught, for example, that he had this incredible gift in the piano and what it meant for him to present himself as a living sacrifice. He'd never, he'd never play the piano again. That's nuts. The eternal God of the universe gave him that incredible gift. Jesus gave every one of you incredible gifts. Christianity is not about you know, dying to yourself in the standpoint that you don't use your gifts and you don't understand that you're made in his image that's, and that, you, that, you, that he takes away all the good things. That's not what Christianity is about. We're going to learn the next time we get together about all of our giftedness. The Lord's made every one of you specially gifted. 
When you present your body to living sacrifice, it doesn't mean that you sacrifice your piano playing. You know why people wanted my brother to sacrifice his piano playing? Because he was a genius on the piano. And there were people around him that weren't geniuses. And they were scared of his gift. And they tried to hold him down. That's horrible. Some of you are really smart. And some of your peers try to hold you down. And and the, the Bible's not saying that you die to yourself. It means that you don't use your giftedness. It means you take your giftedness and you say, Lord, it's yours. It's yours. You're the one that by grace, by mercy, gave me these gifts. What a great thrill today. I get up in the morning, my heart's beating, I'm breathing. What a great thrill. I'm dead to myself, my own personal desires. All that stuff I learned about in Romans 1, gossiping, slander, disobeying my parents if I'm a kid. I can die to that. I can die to illicit passions. I don't have to be controlled by pornography. I don't have to be controlled by homosexuality. I don't have to be controlled by just living for that big Cadillac and feeling that'll make me alive. I'm set free from that. I'm set free from religiosity in chapter 2. That's what it means. Don't let the world force you into its mold. The world is what he talked to you about in chapter 1, 18 and following. What he talked to you about in chapter 2. The world is this present age that Paul actually uses, this present age. Don't let this present age pour you into your mold. Don't think of your life just based upon this present age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you can prove what God's will is, that which is good. What I'm telling you today is your heavenly daddy is really good. And I tell you that from the depths of my heart. My heavenly daddy has been good to me since I was a little bitty kid. And there's been a lot of sorrow, a lot of grief. But he's really good. He's really good. And I've seen him take situations that can be really bad. And he cries about those situations with me and he feels tenderly with me. But I see him as this great author. He somehow weaves them together and produces grace. And that's what all of life is about. So what the decision you're going to decide, what you all decide is, are you going to live your life for yourself? In fact, your whole American society tells you to live for yourself. Like if you're gay... The reason you need to be gay is that's who you are. Live for yourself. That's what your whole society tells you. If you're a heterosexually immoral, then just be heterosexually immoral. That's what you are. Mary saw a program on Oprah Winfrey. Ladies that were married to somebody else met another man, and it was right. It felt right. It feels really good. So they got rid of their first husband. There might have been a lot of reasons for doing that. Now they're married again, and we all live happily ever after. Old guys like me, gifted, make a lot of money, not like me. But they tell their wife that gave birth to all their kids, I don't have feelings anymore. My true identity isn't responding to you anymore. And so I, my true identity is really responding to my secretary. And so it'll be great for all the kids for us to live totally consistently with ourselves. Our true identity will be fulfilled and we'll all live happily ever after. 
I want you to know, brother and sister, from the, by my heart, you are being told that every single day of the week, and it's a lie from hell. The only way you're going to find what is really good is when you die to that old, rebellious, stubborn, selfish life. And you are not controlled by your passions anymore because you've joined Christ on the cross. You see, you're saved, totally the free gift, and Jesus is not asking you to pay him back at all. What he's asking you to do is daily to present your body, and that includes your whole self, because in Greek, they don't separate your body from your soul in the New Testament. In the Greek world, they did. So you teenagers, don't tell me, I love Jesus with all my heart. I love him today. He's so marvelous. He's so good. And then you have sexual intercourse with your boyfriend on Tuesday night. Because your heart is with Jesus, but your body's with your boyfriend. That's not going to work. And husbands, don't you do it. And wives, don't you do it. That's what the, the Apostle Paul is really talking about. He's saying, my body today, like these hands, these lips, these eyes, these feet, this is Dave Wurtson. I'm now living in my bodily existence. And Paul says, David, willingly get up on the altar. Become a sacrifice. And you're going to be a living sacrifice because when you join Jesus in his, in his death, you no longer live to please yourself. He told us early in the book of Romans, he said, don't live to please yourself, but live to please God. Brothers and sisters, if you'll choose to become a living sacrifice for Jesus, letting his death on Calvary become the crucifixion of your selfish ambition and let his resurrection become your basis for a life that gives you power over sin, then you're going to find out that slowly but surely you know what's good because your mind will be renewed as you study God's word and as you spend time with fellow believers and as you live committed as a band of brothers and sisters. And you're going to find out when all is said and done, God's will really was good. It wasn't pleasing me. Every time Paul uses the word pleasing, it's always pleasing God. And then he closed and said, it's going to be perfect. You know why? Because the Jesus that lives inside of you as a total gift of grace has given you perfection. And you're not going to have that perfection until you're home with Jesus. But we can be moving towards that. It's a miracle. I'm really serious. One day, you that have really come to know Jesus are going to be whole and perfect and holy just like your precious Savior. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for a body of Christ where we're able to just open up the book of Romans. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help us to realize that it's not just deciding something on Sunday morning, but it's what we do in giving ourselves to the needs of our husbands and wives and our children. Lord, the book of Romans is going to go on. It's going to talk to us about how we live together. Paul's going to get really concrete about what it looks like to be dead to self, alive in Christ, and letting the life of Jesus really live through us. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit 
would use the rest of our study of Romans to help us to be really transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.